0: good morning everyone there we go good morning you can make your way back to your seat and we're going to get into God's Word together my name is Brent Smith so welcome to Christ Central Church I have a new appreciation for the pillar of fire that led the Israelites up here my I should have worn my sunglasses but you know me I just love to be in the spotlight Dreams fulfilled. (laughs) All right, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. As you flip there, as Mark said, uh, my family and I are heading to PEI for the summer, so this is the last time that I preach until uh, September sometime probably. So uh, we would appreciate your prayers as we head there. Would love for you to come out tonight, would love for you to pray for us through the summer. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting. We're going to have six kids in a camper for eight weeks, and so, whoa, hey, the lights went down. Now I can't see my notes, but that's all right. <laughs> We're going to have six kids in a camper for eight weeks, and so uh, it's going to be an adventure. So we'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, we really love our children, but a camper is a really small uh, space, and uh, for whatever reason, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't seem as ripe when you're camping. And so we would really appreciate your prayers uh, as we head into the summer. We want to be an encouragement to the church and, uh, and we just want to see God work in and through us. And so we'd love for you to pray for us. This morning we're going to look at the conclusion of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. We started working our way through this letter January 22nd, 2017. And so it's been 28 messages in 28 months and here we are we've reached we've reached the end and so we've been following Paul's train of thought as he guides the church through difficulties through reconciliation through finances heavenly visions suffering false teachers and the list goes on and on and so today we arrive at the end and it's good to it's good to complete something isn't it it's good to complete something a sense of accomplishment is nice. So I'm feeling pretty good this morning. This uh, completing this today kind of offsets the unfinished trim on my front door and uh, the unpainted cupboard in my kitchen. It's all, <laughs> it all works out. So that's good. And if some of you want, if you're writing notes and you want to put a little check box at the top, 2 Corinthians, and then at the end of the message, you can check it off, right? Some people really get a kick out of that. You can go ahead and do that. So 2 Corinthians is Paul's last letter. Uh, before he comes to visit them again. So with the closing of this letter, Paul and the Corinthians are moving into a new season, and Paul gives them some powerful and beautiful parting words as he moves on. And it appears that this letter had its desired effect. Uh, the Corinthians responded well. Uh, Paul did come for his, second, for his third visit, as he mentions in this chapter. He did make it. And when he was there in Corinth for the third time is when he wrote uh, the letter of Romans, and so he had enough at least enough peace to sit down and write what some say is his greatest uh, it's his longest letter so so we know things at least went a little bit uh, well. I would think that if people were throwing rocks at your head, it would be hard to write the letter of Romans and uh, so that I guess wasn't the case and uh, Romans fifteen26 Paul insinuates that the church in Corinth came around on the idea of giving and they also contributed to the collection for the poor in Jerusalem. So it's a new season for Paul and the Corinthians. And so with the close of the letter, that's what they're moving into. A new season of unity, a new season of generosity, a new season of maturity. And as a church, we're moving into new seasons as well. As Mark mentioned, we're coming really to the year end, uh, at the end of June, and moving into a season where a lot of us can take a deep breath uh, and there's the temptation to step back, as Mark said. But I think for us as a church, we're entering into a new season of faith, a new season of trusting God, a season, I believe, of, of real breakthrough, although most likely a season of real difficulty because those things usually go together. But I'm excited about what's ahead in the next few months for our church. And so just like Paul and the Corinthians are moving into a new season at the close of this letter, I think we're moving into a new season as well. And so we'll look in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul has some some focal points for the church in Corinth for them to focus on as they head into this new season, and I believe there are areas for us to turn our attention to as well. It's pretty straightforward, as you see on the screen, the two points this morning, that we'll look at from 2 Corinthians 13 are reflect and rejoice. So it's our, it's our summer homework, let's say. We want more quality times of reflection, leading to more consistent times of rejoicing. Reflect and rejoice. So we have a rare look this morning at the endangered species of the two-point sermon, okay? It doesn't happen very often, so take a picture of the screen photo evidence two-point sermon let's pray and then i'll read and we'll uh we'll unpack it a bit so father we're so thankful for the ways that you've already been speaking you've already been encouraging us and uh, father we just pray as we turn our attention to your word we pray that you would come by your spirit i pray Father, that you would fill me with your spirit fill me with love i don't want to be a clanging symbol up here and father i pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. We don't want to leave the same people, Father. So we pray that your spirit would work through your word to change us, to bring salvation, to bring revelation, to bring freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 13, and we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Okay, we're Ready? There we go. Awesome. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All right. Just so you know, my printer printed everything on an angle, so if I'm reading like this, and then I ran out of paper and I had to use some drawings from my daughter. So... That's where we're at this morning, but that's all right. Just a, little, just a little peek behind the curtain there. So Paul wants the Corinthians to stop and take some time to examine their life, to test their life, to reflect upon where they are at with Christ. The Corinthians were intent, it seems, throughout the letter to examine Paul. And so at the last chapter, Paul turns it around and says, why don't you take some time to examine yourself? Now, interesting though, Uh, From the whole of the letter, it's obvious that Paul assumes the majority of the Corinthians will pass the test, but he knows the benefits of self-examination. And Paul is quite clever because in verse 6, he kind of slips in, I hope you will find that we have not failed to meet the test, because he knows that if the Corinthians discern that Christ is in them, then they must also admit that Christ is in Paul, because in large part, they owe their Christian faith and their Christian maturity to Paul. Who they are in Christ, they owe to Paul. Because he's the one who showed them Christ. He's the one who introduced them to Christ. He's the one who taught them Christ. So if they stamp a passing grade on their own life, then they have to then take that same stamp and stamp Paul. He's a wily old fox, that Paul. And so Paul says, okay, Corinthians, before I come visit again, examine yourself, test yourself. So for us today, this probably doesn't delight us. This probably doesn't delight us. For you high school students gearing up for exam time, exams are tough, right? Exams can be grueling and humbling, but nothing is more important right now than the results of the exam, And the same is true for the exams that Paul is talking about here. It's not really fun, it's humbling, but nothing is more important than the result of the exam, is Jesus Christ in me or not? To be fair, we don't hate all exams. There are some exams that we like very much. Just like the Corinthians with Paul, we really like to examine other people. We examine other people on social media. We examine other drivers. We examine other parents. We examine other churches. We know everything that's wrong with everybody. They are messed up here. They shouldn't be acting like that. And they need to do this. And to some extent, we also like other people examining us because we know that when other people examine us, they can't look really deep. And they're just going to look at a surface level. And so we can say, hey, come look at my external achievements. Look at all these external achievements and praise me, right? Take a look at me now, right? I used to be obsessed with Phil Collins, but take a look at me now. Huh? Good dad joke for you? No? No? Darren's with me. Darren loves the dad jokes. We like to examine others, we may even enjoy others examining us, but we don't really take a lot of time to examine our own lives, right? Life is busy, there's new things to post, there's new sales to buy, where are we ever going to find time to examine ourselves? It's so easy for days to turn into weeks and weeks into months, and we just never take time to stop and think. So what does it look like to examine yourself to see whether Christ is in you or not? Oftentimes when the question, are you a Christian, is raised, uh, people look back to a past event. They have a date, a time, an event that they can describe, a dramatic change maybe, and that's fine and good. Others of you uh, might be more like myself where we might find it a bit harder to pinpoint to an exact day, an exact time. But either way, Paul isn't interested in past events here. He's looking to present reality. Examine yourself today. Where are you at today? So, how do we do that? How should we today examine and test ourselves? It's a big topic, but for this morning, I'll give you three tests and then three words of counsel to go along with the tests. So throughout church history, many have pointed to three ways to examine our lives to answer the question, does Christ dwell in me? What are the signs of life? And the best place to start would be where Paul does here with the objective truth of God's Word, which he calls the faith. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. The faith is different from just referencing faith in general. The faith is what we contend for earnestly, the Christian faith, Christian doctrine. Paul has already warned the Corinthians about following another Jesus, following another gospel. So it's good to examine ourselves by what we believe. We might call it the doctrine test. We've talked about tests, we've talked about examining, now we're mentioning doctrine. Some of, some of you are just shutting down, but stay with me, stay with me, Okay. It's good to ask ourselves what we believe. 1 John 4.6 says that if you will not listen to the apostolic teaching found in Scripture, you are not from God. Right? So it's good to ask ourselves, are my beliefs governed by Scripture or by my personal likes and dislikes? Do I evaluate my opinions above God's? And most importantly, who is Jesus to me? So we have a doctrine test. It's not the only test because you can be orthodox in doctrine and still not be a follower of Jesus. The demons were quite orthodox as they uh, flew over a cliffside in a bunch of pigs, right? So we can be quite orthodox in our beliefs but still not be a follower of Jesus. So we need to look elsewhere as well. We should also look at our lives with what we'll call the experience test. So Paul asks the Corinthians whether Christ dwells in them. He says, test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And he says, to see whether Christ dwells in you. The indwelling of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. An essential part of the New Testament understanding of who a Christian is, is someone with whom Christ dwells. I live, but not I, Christ lives in me, that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it's not just about what we know, what we believe. It's not just about a bunch of facts that we check off in our head. The Bible says the essential part of what makes a New Testament Christian is that he or she has Christ dwelling in them. So how do we know that or not? Part of the answer is that He assures us of His presence through the Spirit. Romans talks about the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. He prompts us to cry out with that Abba Father cry. We are deeply assured that God loves us. He makes His presence felt. We also see Him reproducing His character in us. We have subjective consciousness and objective fact of our character being transformed as Tim was praying out and thanking God that He never changes, yet when He comes into our life, He brings real change. First John 3.9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It doesn't mean that we need to clean up our act before coming to Christ but it does mean that Christ's character should be formed in us as we follow Him. Our attitude towards sin should now be different. It should grieve us because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. We're living against our new nature. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. doesn't mean that we won't sin. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're a liar. So sometimes we trip. Sometimes we trip over and over in the same spot. Growing up, my parents had this old kind of Victorian couch and it had this really annoying third leg right in the middle of the couch. It had legs on each end and then it had this annoying one in the middle. And I think every week I stub my toe on that leg. So sometimes it's just, oh, again. Oh, I did it again. Oh, I lost my temper Again, there's some sin that clings a little bit more closely. But practicing sin is like running towards the couch, jamming my toe into the couch, and squealing with delight as I fly across the living room. Okay? Is that a helpful difference? Sometimes we're going to sin. We're going to stub our toe sometimes. Sometimes we stub our toe over and over in the same place. And we can think, oh... I did it again. But there's something different in us that we don't want to just go, whee! I love stubbing my toe in that place. We're changed. So, with the experience test, we shouldn't ask ourselves, do I sin? Because we most certainly do, but we should ask, how do I feel and respond when I sin? am i different am i indifferent and cold toward my failures do i know something of that abba cry in my heart how do you respond how do you feel when you sin does it feel foreign to you does it feel like ah i'm going against who god has made me to be Thirdly, we should also examine our love toward others. We'll call that the love test. As the chapter goes on, Paul puts a huge emphasis on love and peace amongst the church community. 1 John 3.14 puts it very clear. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. And 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. So we should ask ourselves, if someone looked at my attitude and commitment toward those in this room, would they say that I love God? Do I look forward to gathering together because of my love for the church or do I just do it as my weekly duty they're hard questions i said at the first exams are not fun but they're beneficial i grew up with my dad always saying that before he was a christian he would stay at the hilltop pub until they kicked him out at two in the morning or whatever because he loved the people he was with and the things that they did it was community it was friendship it was his delight but when god saved him that way of life was replaced by a greater affection. And I always remember him saying that he could not wrap his head around why when in the church it seemed like people came as if it was the last place they wanted to be and they left as if it was first out the door winds. Do we love the brothers and sisters? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love It sounds radical and trendy to say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. But it just doesn't work. Jesus is cool, but the church is this and the church is that. Listen, Jesus died for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. He rescued her. He cares for her. He nourishes her. She is his forever. And so if you say to me, I really like hanging out with you, Brent, but I can't stand Karen, guess what? We are not going to be friends. (laughs) The church is the bride of Christ. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the church. This is why the very last things Paul tells the Corinthians all have to do with unity and love in the church verse 11 aim for restoration don't just let things fester hope for more than a splintered church extend the same forgiveness to others that you have received from God comfort one another he says many in the church are hurting they're vulnerable they're wounded by sin comfort them Agree with one another. Be like-minded. Don't just agree to disagree on major things, on the essential truths of the faith and the vision of our church. Let's work to agree together. As Barb was saying on Thursday night, let's sing one song. Let's lift one voice. The spirit of unity has been poured out on us. Let's work to maintain it. Let's agree with one another. Live in peace. Stop trying to stir things up. Stop always trying to start a fight or look for a problem. Stop thinking the worst of people. Stop arguing about trivial little things. Oftentimes in the church, we get worked up over the smallest little things and we're over here stating our opinion about how loud worship should be as if we're defending the virgin birth before the council of Nicaea. We just need to stop it. We need to stop getting so worked up about little things. Live in peace, Paul says. Live in peace. And then he finishes the section on relationships by saying the infamous, greet one another with a holy kiss. Which isn't just a great Christian pickup line. <laughs> hey baby, 2 Corinthians 13.12 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So how about you and I get biblical? <laughs> huh? You write it down. You can write it down if you want. (laughs) Write it down. You can use that if you want. It's more than that. Paul is really blowing the doors wide open on us and how we should see church and seeing church as a family. At the time, the only people you greeted with a kiss were family. And to think about greeting someone else from another race, from another gender, from another economic background. It was absurd to greet them that way. And Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so what he's doing is he's saying, the way that you interact with your family, interact with the church. It was radical then, it was radical now. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The church is now your family. So often, I think, for me at least, we do, we do this family thing weird. And we just, sometimes in some church settings, it's like we, 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 we talk about brothers and sisters, but we, we put in Christ at the end, and it's like an asterisk. And then you look at the bottom of the page, and it says, not really like brothers and sisters at all, except we just call the same guy Father, right? Right? It's like we're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We just need to put that qualifying statement on it. And Paul's just like, treat one another like brothers and sisters. Treat one another in practical ways, in the everyday things of life. Live like family. It doesn't need to be corny or weird We don't need to say, hi, Brother Mark, how are you? I'm good, Brother Brent, right? I have a brother. His name is Ryan, and we do not call each other brother, (laughs) right? We just live like we're brothers. I don't feel I need to state my brotherness to him every time I meet him. We just live like we're brothers. So we don't need to be corny and weird about it, but it's radical when we live like it. These are challenging tests. What do we believe? What is our experience of the Spirit dwelling in us? Do we love our brothers and sisters? Exams are never fun, but they are necessary. But three things I would offer that I think are helpful to keep in mind when Paul says, examine yourself. Three words of counsel. Before I do that, I'm going to illegally take a drink. first word of counsel, anxiety need not rule this morning. Most often, people who live in fear that they aren't saved are the ones who need to worry about it the least. So if this morning you are saying, oh God, I just want to know you more. I just want to experience more of you in my life. I long for the day when I am done with sin completely. This selfishness in my heart restricts me so much from loving those around me. God, Help me. Listen, only a Christian talks like that. So take heart and keep calling out to God. On the flip side, it could be that the Holy Spirit is showing you today your true spiritual condition and you know you're not saved. You can take heart as well because God's grace is for you this morning. It doesn't matter how long you've been going through the motions. Doesn't matter how long you've been putting him off. Doesn't matter how long you've been pretending. Doesn't matter how involved you are in the activities of the church. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can have a sense of anxiety right now, but you can walk out those doors with assurance because God's grace is for you this morning. Second, I would say self-examination like this is not an all-day, everyday activity. It's not an all-day, everyday activity. It's not a good idea to never look in a mirror, or you might walk out of the house with jam on your face or something, right? But it's also not a good idea to just go through your day, all day, every day, looking at a mirror. Is my hair out of place? Is my collar shifted? Oh, the wind's blowing up. Boom! You get hit by something, right? Or you run into a pole. It's equally not as good to just go through your day looking in a mirror. But it is helpful on occasion to take some time to look in a mirror and see where you're at. So Paul is not calling us to a morbid exercise of obsessively checking our spiritual pulse. Where am I at? Have I drifted here? Am I growing here? Forever looking inward And becoming oblivious and cold to a world around us that is in desperate need of the love of Christ. And third, I would say in your self-examination, it's good to remember that there are more beautiful things to look at. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane put, put it this way, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. I'll read that again. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And repose in His almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. For every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. We must look at our own lives, but we also must look past ourselves to Christ, to who He is, to what he has done, to what he has promised he will do. Because when I realize that nothing in my life is perfect, that all my beliefs are somewhat flawed, that all my efforts for God and his kingdom are marked by sin and selfishness, continuing to look at myself and searching my own heart is futile. Do I turn my gaze on Jesus, whose life and death and resurrection is my only hope? It can be beneficial to look inside to see where we are in error, but the answers to those errors are not found by continuing to look deeper inside. They are only found by looking to Jesus. This is why Paul says, examine yourself. And then in verse 11 says, rejoice. If all you do is look at yourself without looking to Christ, Your self-examination will only lead to despair or to arrogance, but it will not lead to joy. But Paul says, okay, examine yourself, test yourself, and then a few verses later he says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. We have to get that. We have to get that. Yes, look at yourself. Yes, examine yourself. Yes, test yourself. But for every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. Then and only then will we be able to rejoice. And that's what Paul says at the very end. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. I love the simple commands of the Bible. Yeah, there's some tricky bits in there. But I think we just need to stop and appreciate when the Bible just gives us something so simple and so straightforward. Finally, you're waiting for this big thing. Rejoice. Period. We need to appreciate that. In a time when all these life teachers and gurus are talking about this stuff and you just can't wrap your head around it and it sounds all lofty and, you know, the vibrational consciousness is the benefit of your abundance and all and you're just like what does this even mean and how does it relate to my life? And Paul's like, rejoice right? I love that. One word, rejoice. A lack of rejoicing comes from a loss of perspective. A lack of rejoicing comes from a loss of perspective. We think about our sin, but we lose sight of our Savior. We think about the governments of the world, but lose sight of Jesus on His throne. We focus on the misery today, but lose sight of the hope of eternity A lack of rejoicing comes from a loss of perspective. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Thought is a choice. Someone once said to Martin Luther, I have no control over what I think about. And Martin Luther responded, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. So what are you thinking about? What's occupying your thoughts? What's your perspective? It doesn't mean that we just walk around with plastic smiles and pretend to be oblivious to where things are at. Paul told us back in in chapter 6 that we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's not losing touch with reality. It's about grabbing hold of the fact that there's a greater reality. The Corinthians would have plenty of reasons to feel justified in sulking around in self-pity, but Paul says, no, rejoice, rejoice. What the world needs is a rejoicing church. The world needs a rejoicing church. Nobody ever said, when I saw their, uh, their introspection and their just how sullen and grumpy they were i just said i must have that in my own life and i came to christ (laughs) the world needs a rejoicing church when the angels came to the shepherds to announce the birth of jesus they said what we come bringing good news of great joy the gospel is good news of great joy and as we joyfully share it with others we become messengers of happiness telling a desperately tired and hurting world where they can find the greatest source of happiness it's not by looking in themselves it's only and ever by looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ and I think if we're reflecting rightly on our lives we'll be a church that rejoices we'll be a church that rejoices if our rejoicing is dependent on our earthly circumstances, then the world will just look and say, what, what difference does it make? She goes through the same things I do, she responds the same way I respond, and she doesn't get to sleep in on a Sunday morning. Why would I want that? What will draw the world to the gospel is that we above everyone else know how to celebrate and feast and rejoice not in sin, but in the happiness that we know because we have a God who has taken away our judgment, who has taken away our sin, who has freed us from shame, who has set us free to live an abundant and eternal life, and who the Bible says right now is rejoicing over us in gladness so that we can face suffering and hardship and our own failure. And yes, there's, there's grief, and yes, there's sorrow, but there is rejoicing. That's what will win the world to Jesus. We look beyond ourselves to the one who forgives us, who empowers us, who gives us a hope and a future. Church, if our reflection does not lead us to more and more rejoicing, we're doing it wrong because we have much to rejoice about. Do we want to grow in our love for each other? Yes. Do we want to be done with sin? Absolutely. But we have so much to rejoice about. Are there hardships in our life? Do we feel the effects of a sin-broken world? Yes, but we have much to rejoice about. My heart for us as a church is that we would have more quality times of reflection which leads to more consistent rejoicing. Which leads to more consistent rejoicing. The band can come on up. as we went through those different tests. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in your own, your own reflection. Beth's going to lead us in a song. I don't want to say very much to cut across what the Holy Spirit might be doing. But I want to read this. Why don't we stand and I'll read this to close. All our sickness, all our sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still, turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle, so take heart and stand amazed. Rejoice! When you cry to Him, He hears your voice. He will wipe away your tears. Rejoice! In the midst of suffering, He will help you sing. We are children of the promise the beloved of the Lord, one with everlasting kindness, bought with sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. Rejoice. Come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of our praise. Rejoice. Sing of mercies of your king, and with trembling, rejoice. Amen.